Well, friends, what is a missionary? What is a missionary? It's something that we talk about a lot here. We give a portion of our yearly budget to missions. We pray and ask that the Lord would give us opportunities to help and support missionaries. We even pray so boldly that the Lord would raise up missionaries from among our body that they may be sent out. But rarely do we actually ask a very basic question of what is a missionary. Well, if I could give you a succinct definition, a missionary, as the Bible seems to lay it out, is someone who sees it as their mission, their purpose, to be used by God to grow his kingdom. A missionary is a person who sees it as their purpose, their goal, their mission in life, to be used by God to grow his kingdom. And so in light of that definition, do you see yourself as a missionary? If you're here today and you're a Christian, may I propose that this is indeed God's intention for you. If you're here today and you're, you're not a Christian, today I want to press you with this question then. What are you giving your life to? Spring, summer, now into the fall, we've been working through the book known as Acts. A fuller title to that book, you've heard me say it plenty of times now, is the Acts of Jesus Christ through His apostles in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's this book all about how Jesus' early followers responded to the mission that He gave them to go and take the gospel to the end of the world. This is Jesus' mission to redeem a people for himself that he intends to accomplish through those very people. And we've seen throughout the book that this is an ever-expanding mission. We found a good summary of, of what happens here. Paul himself talks about this in Romans 1.16. That the, power of the, that the gospel is the power unto salvation, first to the Jew and then to the Greek or to the Gentile. And that's exactly what we've seen in the book of Acts, hasn't it been? In many ways, this is a fulfillment of what we looked at this past week in our Bible studies. That this is a fulfillment of that promise that God made to Abraham back in Genesis so, so long ago. That through Abraham and his offspring, namely through Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, God would bless the nations. We see here now Jesus' people fulfilling that very promise. But now we get to a very important part of the book of Acts. Over the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at what is traditionally known as Paul's second missionary journey. He has a total of three here at least, and most, most people agree with that, that he has three missionary journeys. And here we see his second we're going to be looking at over the next three weeks, and it spans from Acts 15, 36, all the way to Acts 18, 22. This time period is around 50 to 53 A.D. And we're going to see Paul and his company, his helpers, really span a total of about 3,000 miles. 3,000 miles over three years, both by land and by sea. And the main thing, I'll mention this again in the next two weeks, that I want us to see as we look at these passages is this. It's for us to see how Jesus himself provided all that was necessary to fulfill his mission. He did it then. And friends, here's the good news. He's still doing the exact same thing today. So, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me as we look at Paul's first, the first part of Paul's Second missionary journey in Acts 15.36. Today we're going to be looking at a fairly large passage. Acts 15.36 all the way through 16.40. Now if you didn't bring your own Bible and you want to use one of the pew Bibles, Acts 15.36 can be found on page 870. Page 870 there in the pew Bibles. As always, if you don't have a Bible of your own or if you have a neighbor, a friend, co-worker who doesn't have a Bible, we do have some free ones in the foyer. Please take one today. Uh, we have purchased those to give away, so, so please take one. 
Uh, because it's a longer passage today, normally our practice is that I'll have everyone stand and I'll read the passage or a portion of the passage. Today we're going to do it a little bit different. I'm going to be reading the passage as we go throughout. So I'm not going to have a stand like we normally do. We'll get back into that next week. But let me go ahead and give you the points of this passage. And y'all get ready because I have five of them. So we're going to be going at a pretty good clip here. So, so, so prepare yourselves. Get ready to write. Go ahead and stretch your, your wrist out if, if you're the note-taking type. Here are the five points. And all five of them have the word necessary at the beginning, okay? So if you want to go ahead and write the word necessary down five times, if you want to write these down. down. We see how Jesus provides everything necessary for his rescue mission. So here they are. The necessary people. We're going to see this in Acts 15.36 through 16.5. The necessary spirit. See this in Acts 16.6 through 10. The necessary ministry in Acts 16, 11 through 15. The necessary endurance in 16, 16 through 24. And then jumping to the end, 35 through 40. I'll remind you of that when we get to it. And then number five, the necessary salvation. We see this in Acts 16, 25 through 34. So the necessary people, spirit, ministry, endurance, and salvation. My prayer as we look at these five things, though is that Jesus would give us, as his people today, okay, so, so we're continuing the mission of God, as his people today, that, God, that, that Jesus would give us great courage and power as we see that he himself provides us with all that is necessary to build his kingdom and to redeem a people for himself. I think that is what Luke is trying to hand the first readers of this, and that's what, we, what God was saying to us today. When we take up courage and power, and knowing that Jesus provides all that's necessary. Let's get into it. Point one, the necessary people. Let me read to us Acts 15, 36 through 16, 5. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with him, take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Okay, so in this first section, this point, the necessary people, we find that, that in this section that Paul decides to go back down and encourage all of those churches that had been planted on his first missionary journey. And he actually does this, this time, by land. We find that Paul doesn't really like sailing very much. And we find eventually by the end why he doesn't really like sailing very much. It's kind of a dangerous thing to do. And so, so, so he decides to go by land. He's going to go back and encourage all of these churches that he and Barnabas were a part of planting early on. But the question is, who is he going to take with him? We see there in 15, 6, 36 through 41 that they're still in Antioch, which is the central hub for Paul and, and company. And Barnabas there wants to bring John Mark. But we got to remember who John Mark was. John Mark was a person that they had picked up along the way, but ends up leaving them and ditching them when they get to Pamphylia. Now Luke, in his kindness, doesn't really tell us why John Mark left, but we can begin to infer here with Paul's pushback about taking him that John Mark may be left for some not-so-good reasons. Well, we find out later in Paul's letters, specifically in Colossians 4.10, that Barnabas and John Mark are actually cousins with each other. And so perhaps Barnabas wants to bring his cousin John Mark along because he likes the guy. But Paul's not having it. Now, some may read this and think that Paul is, is being harsh here. 
But he realized that certain aspects and certain ministries and certain jobs are not for everyone. He realizes that the Christian life is hard. There are deep trials. And sometimes you need mature people to go through those deep trials with you. And so this dispute rises up. Literally in the Greek, it's this exhausting disagreement. I mean, they they really have it out. But they reach a compromise. And don't miss this. They do reach a compromise. And it ends with two ministries in the place of one. Thinking about God's sovereignty here, that amongst their division, two ministries actually are born instead of the one that was initially thought of. We find that Barnabas and John Mark go to Cyprus, which is Barnabas' hometown. And Paul and Silas go to the region of Galatia. What's interesting here is that it's Silas that Paul decides to take. And why is that interesting? Well, you've got to remember that Paul is stationed here in Antioch, which is a, a very Gentile church. But where is Silas from? We find in the previous passage that Silas is from Jerusalem, which is a very Jewish church. And so you have here the two, two biggest breaks in, in, in the early church coming now together. After we last week looked at the unity that's brought through the gospel itself, we now seeing it be, we see it being worked out in these two men coming together from a Gentile church and a Jewish church to come together to go on a mission. Friends, there are a couple things for us just to take away from this. First is that disagreements and even divisions may happen among good, godly Christians. But just because that happens does not always mean that the gospel loses its power. Don't miss that here. The nature of the gospel itself compels these two churches in Antioch and Jerusalem to work together to send them out. This is why church-to-church partnership is so important. This is why we, we want to partner and network and be a, be a part of what other churches are doing and to support them and for them to support us. And the same goes with, with gospel-preaching ministries as well. We can't do this alone. We need other believers. We need ministry helps. And so they go on their way, Paul and Silas, and we see there in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 16 that they pick up this guy, Timothy, and Timothy, he has this excellent reputation. You see that there, that, that the churches are communicating with each other, and they're all talking about how Timothy is a wonderful guy. But Timothy's background creates a specific problem, doesn't it? We saw in last week's passage that those who are purely Gentiles don't need to be circumcised to be Christians for salvation. That, that Gentiles don't need to become Jews before they can become Christians. But Timothy's a little bit different. He has a Jewish mother and a Gentile father. And the expectation of the time would have been, because of his Jewish heritage, he would have been a part of the Jewish customs. And Paul realizes this. He realizes that taking Timothy, who, when it comes to his outward appearance, looks like a Gentile and not a Jew, is going to cause some problems in the places where they go. He realizes that, that the way that Timothy is, that his Gentileness, if you will, is going to cause some hiccups. And Paul doesn't want to do that. And so he takes Timothy, yes, Timothy, an adult man, and circumcises him. My children caught on to this this week as we were reading the passage, and they thought, what? And so I had to explain to them that the culture and the times were very different from ours. And there's not a modesty issue here, and there's not a privacy issue. This is something that the Jewish people were about. And so Paul does take Timothy, and in many ways, as we heard T.J. read from 2 Timothy earlier, Paul becomes his father in the faith, circumcising him as his biological father would have. The circumcision here is not because Paul thinks it saves. Let's be clear about that. But it is to avoid undue problems and conflict among the Jews that they'll encounter. And Timothy acknowledges here by taking circumcision upon himself his own Jewish heritage. And friends, there, there's a real reality and a real truth that we can pick up on here about the importance of not creating undue offense in our lives. Let me just say it this way. The gospel is offensive enough. There's no reason for us to cause undue offense. 
If there is a way to avoid offending people outside of preaching the gospel, it's worth considering at least. Because just preaching that Jesus is the only way of salvation is offensive enough. But also there's a bigger application here of what Paul understood that the gospel work is worth. And gospel work is worth sacrifice. It was worth Timothy's painful sacrifice. And we too have to know what sacrifices and uncomfortable things are worth enduring for the sake of reaching those who are walking in darkness. And so they go with a new team. They visit churches. They deliver. We see here Luke butts this right up against Timothy's circumcision on purpose. They deliver the news that circumcision is not necessary for salvation. This is what the the council in Jerusalem had come to find out. They'd come to in their discussion. And in announcing this, they're building up the churches. They're seeing new converts daily. Which brings us to the second necessary piece of this gospel advancement, and that is the necessary spirit. Let me read to us Acts 16, 6 through 10. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go in Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing through Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. We see here as as. Paul and company continue on their journey. They push the gospel further and further. Ultimately, though, we see that this is guided by the Jesus-sent Holy Spirit alone. You see there in verse 6 that they were desiring to go into Asia. These are really areas, if you look at the map, that had kind of already been reached on Paul's first missionary journey. Some different cities that he hadn't got to yet, but they were trying to push down into that. But we're told here... That he's prevented by the Holy Spirit. Now we're not told how that happened or, or what the Holy Spirit did to prevent him. He didn't walk into like an invisible wall or something. But, but, but we're not told specifically. Luke gives us the important aspect that the Holy Spirit is the one who stopped him. The same thing happens in Bithynia. They desire to go there to that city and they're forbidden again. But specifically notice what Luke writes here. They attempted to go in Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Now, friends, the question here is, who's the Spirit of Jesus? Well, it is the same Holy Spirit that has prevented them before. So why does Paul say it differently here? Because he wants us to realize that this Holy Spirit is not serving himself, but he is serving Jesus Christ. And this is Jesus' mission. It was in the beginning, and it still is now. Luke is pressing that Jesus is directing this. And so where will they go? We see in verses 9 and 10. That Paul has a vision of a man. Now Luke never tells us if Paul meets this man. This vision, like all visions in Acts, are prompted by Jesus himself. Perhaps because the, the Spirit previously stops them, Lord Jesus wants to make it very clear to Paul, this is what I want you to do. And so he gives him a vision so that there's no doubt about where he's supposed to go. I mean, at this point, you've got to think if you're Paul, he's like, well, where am I supposed to go? I mean, I'm going to try to go here, try to go here. Jesus says, no, I want you to go to Macedonia. The Macedonians need help. Literally, they need salvation. And so Paul and company do the only thing we should do when God calls us. They obey. Now, I do want to note this here because... We find a transitional statement in the book of Acts, a transitional word. You see it right there in verse 10. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia. For the first time in the entire book, Luke now writes in the second person. He's no longer talking about them. He's now talking about us. Somewhere here, Paul and company pick up another member of the team. It is the Dr. Luke who writes this book. And we find that Luke accompanies Paul and his team the rest of the way through this journey. It is a beautiful thing 
that Luke gets to observe firsthand. Friends, what I want you to see here in the necessary spirit is what drives their obedience. Paul is not manipulative here. He does not try to pick the locks on doors that he wants to open. You get what I'm saying there, right? He's not saying, oh, maybe God wants me to go here. So, oh, look at that. That door opened. Oh, yeah, maybe we'll go that way. No, Paul is waiting upon the Lord. He is serving the Lord. And when God opens a door, he says, that's where I'm going. This is the work of the Spirit in us. Trusting God to direct over time and being faithful in it. Paul intended to go to Asia. But Jesus wants to expand into what is today Europe. And so we see the mission expanding further and further and further. Let's see what happens when they get there. Let me pick up in Acts 16, 11 through 15 as we see point three, the necessary ministry. So setting sail from Troas, we, notice the we here, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Here in the necessary ministry, we see that Paul and company are hitting the ground running. They get to Macedonia, they specifically get to Philippi, which is this colony in Macedonia. It's a small colony, but it's influential. Luke makes note of that. It's a Roman colony, meaning that that the Romans are there, they're occupying it. And so it is a place of influence, no matter what size it is. And they see that there's work to be done. And so they go teaching us that our call to be gospel bringers can take place wherever we are. We see this first as they get to Philippi. They won't waste time. It's these cities that, that Luke mentions in passing here, we see that they're just going right through them. They're just going. He makes it clear. There's no special stops here. And so they get to this place, and they're there, Luke says, for some days. And so Paul and his friends make their way outside of the city to a place of prayer. It's like a... A, a, a food truck version of, of, of a synagogue. It's a place of prayer there by the riverside. And, and they're expecting people to come to this place to pray to God. Mostly they're looking for Jews and those Gentiles who have begun worshiping Yahweh. And they, they find there women who are doing that very thing. And we're reminded of the role that women play, not just in, in Luke's accounts here, but, but in Paul's ministry. And so these women are gathered to worship and they meet this woman, Lydia. Luke says that she's a worker with purple goods. The Greek here indicates that she works with fine cloth and fine linen for the wealthy. And she's there hearing them. Luke does make note that she herself is a worshiper of God. That she's taken up the Jewish customs because she is not a Jew herself. It says, in fact, that she's from Thyatira. The big thing that Luke notes is how her heart is opened. How her heart is opened. But by who? Who opens her heart? Luke tells us there in verse 14. The Lord opened her heart. Now I've mentioned this before throughout the book of Acts. But anytime the Lord is referenced here, you notice it's not in all caps. It is the Lord, as in literally the Master, speaking of Jesus Christ. We note here, friend, that that Lydia does not ask Jesus into her heart. No, it is Jesus who comes upon her heart and opens her heart and gives her a heart that believes, that trusts. It is His work in her life. Her hearing and her paying attention is the sign of faith. So the salvation is made clear. 
as she leaves whatever former worship she had in her life and begins following the one who had opened her heart. The reason I think Luke mentions here and says it is the Lord who opens her heart is because it is a word that shows submission to an authority. And she has begun to submit her life to Jesus Christ. This is what her baptism and the baptism of her household shows. It shows a change of allegiance. There's a quick note here because the same thing is going to happen in a moment with the Philippian jailer. The entire household is mentioned. This is all I'm going to say about it. We don't know who was in that household. You can make inferences if you want to, but Luke just says her household. What is the big application here, though? The big application in seeing in this section is that this change of allegiance affects everything about her. It affects everything about her. It causes her to become a welcoming woman. She gives delight. She finds delight in giving her home to these people that she just met. She becomes hospitable almost instantly. And she says, if you found me to be faithful, come and stay with me. And we find that Paul and his team now have a central hub in the city of Philippi where they can come and they can stay and they can do their ministry. Friends, what an encouragement for us. What a correction. Are we like Lydia in finding such joy and having our hearts opened by the Lord that we too are hospitable and open our homes? So Paul and his team begin to stay there and we find in point four the necessary endurance for their time in Philippi. Let me read for us from Acts 16, 16 through 18. And as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. We see, as Paul makes his way to Philippi, that he has some pushback, not just from the authorities, as we're going to see here in just a moment, but from the spiritual world as well. Paul's ministry moves now from a wealthy woman to a poor slave girl. But we see how important, again, a role that women play here. Only this slave girl isn't in this state because of herself, but because of a power that she, suggests, that she holds, that she possesses. Luke tells us that she had a spirit of divination. Literally in the Greek here, and I find this very interesting, it says that she has a spirit, namely the python. Namely the python. There's an entire Greek background wrapped up in this. But it's worth noting for us who know of the deceptive nature of snakes and dragons that this girl would have a spirit, a demonic force known as the python. And what is it that she does with this spirit in her? It says that she was a fortune teller, literally that she's a soothsayer. Meaning that the fortunes that she's telling people are not bad fortunes. But she's soothing them with her soft sayings. And by doing this, she brought a lot of money to her owners through her oppression. But the Spirit latches onto Paul. Much like the demons would in Jesus' own ministry. Crying out. What would you have to do with us, son of the Most High God? In the same exact way we see it here with Peter. Here is a servant of the Most High God who's proclaiming to you the way of salvation. It's amazing how much these demonic things say true statements, isn't it? And eventually Paul has had enough. Literally in the Greek, it says that Paul's burdened. 
And we get this sense here in our English translation of Paul being annoyed that he was being really fickle. But you have to understand here that Paul's burden is for gospel proclamation and that the Spirit was hindering him in some way. And so he turns and he commands specifically in the name of Jesus Christ. You notice where Paul finds his authority where we should find our own. He says enough is enough. Come out of her. And it does in that very hour. But that kind of gospel ministry, it has consequences. Let's continue reading in verse 19. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks, preventing them from running away, literally. What we see in Paul's casting out this demon from this slave is the anger that wells up in those who kept her. And why does their anger well up? Don't miss what Luke says. Their hope of gain was taken away. It's a quick side note, but can I, can I just point this out? Whatever it may be, whenever you find yourself angry, it is because some hope of gain for yourself has been taken away. Test me on that this week. We see here, though, the anger that is so true in our world, even today, that we find from the outside culture is often because the proclaiming of Christ and His work takes away their hopes in themselves, in their pockets, in their bellies, in their pleasures. And so they are dragged, Paul and his friends are dragged before the magistrates who rule and pass judgment in the town square. The way they would have it set up is they're in the market. The magistrates would sit on a seat of judgment and they would bring people to be judged. They didn't have a specific courthouse. They would just do it there in front of everywhere. And it's very public. The beating that Paul and his friends endure by these rods is public. Everybody is there. Everybody sees it. Everybody notices the commotion. And it says even the crowds partake in it. But what's interesting is the accusations that they offer leading to this. Now, some of us read this and they say, well, well, they're lying, just like like they did about Jesus. But the reality is, is that they're not so much. They are, in fact, Jews, at least in their heritage, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And they are, in some way, disturbing the city, aren't they? But even more than that, These keepers of this girl say that they advocate there in verse 21 customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. What are they getting at here? What are these customs that Paul is arguing for? Well, friends, this is the custom and it's wrapped up in everything that we may experience in our own time as it relates to persecution and pushback. And this is the custom. Stop worshiping the world and the kingdoms of this world and worship Christ alone. That's a problem for the Romans because who do they bow to? Finally, it is Caesar and it is the Roman Empire. There's much that can be said here. But friends, don't miss this reality. We see it throughout the book of Acts and we see it clearly here. That this is the response from the world when the kingdom of Jesus Christ is proclaimed. I don't want you as a church in this day and time to be surprised when fiery trials come among you. When the world hates you 
Lord forbid when they drag us into the city squares and beat us with rods. Do not be surprised. Because this is what the kingdom of Jesus does. It's glorious. And it's good. Friends, we should not be surprised when blows come upon us. When we are put in stocks. We have brothers and sisters around the world that this very morning are sitting in prison for the same exact reason that Paul and his friends were in prison so long ago. They were calling people to leave the kingdoms of this world and to come into the kingdom of Christ. Friends, I don't pretend to be a fortune teller and I'm definitely not going to be a soothsayer. I don't know what it may look like in our own time and place, but sometimes we do have to realize that persecution is backed into. And what I mean by that is that persecution against Christ's followers doesn't always come right into our face. People may not always say, we hate you because you love Jesus. Persecution is sometimes backed into and it's not only it's only until the back end of things that we realize that the persecution that Christians are receiving is because of Jesus and not because of all the other reasons that were given when it all started. But what happens? Well, let me jump to the end here. The last 5 verses of our passage and we'll get to that middle passage about what happens in the jail in just a moment. But let me pick up in Acts 16:35 through 40. But when it was a day, the magistrates sent the police. Now, it's, let me just stop here. It's weird that we find the word police in our Bibles. You're like, the police? Like, what did they show up in squad cars? Like, what did that look like? There's, there's a, a more accurate translation may be the constables, those who are in charge of keeping the peace, okay? So the police, they send them there. And, and notice how they keep, try to keep the police, or keep the peace here, saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore come out now and and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens. Paul saying him and his company are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates. They're still trying to keep the peace, right? And they were afraid. And when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and they apologized to them. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison. They visited Lydia, their home base. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Now why did I want to jump to the end here? Because there's something I want you to see. I want you to see how the magistrate tried to deal with these early Christians. How the government, the judges, the leaders of this time, the authorities, tried to deal with these early Christians is they tried to just get rid of them. To sweep them out of the way. To say, oh, maybe that was a bad thing. We shouldn't have beat them in public. Maybe we just can open the back door of the prison and say, y'all get lost. You just pretend like nothing happened. You're, right? So, so the, the jailer says, the magistrates there in verse 36 have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and Go in peace. And I think the word peace, when it got used, was, was, was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back for Paul. Peace? Peace? You just beat us publicly. And we were Roman citizens. Now, why Paul waits to say that they're Roman citizens until this point, we're going to see in just a minute, I think. But the fact is that it was against the law of the time to beat a Roman citizen in public with rods. And so the magistrate realizes, oh no. We've done something wrong. And Luke says that they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. Now why is Paul being this way? There's been a few different times, even in this passage, where people could read this and say, oh, Paul, what a grumpy, irritated fellow. I'm not saying he wasn't. If, if you got beaten public, you might be a little agitated too, a little on edge. But I think there is a bigger theological, a bigger spiritual reason that Paul is acting the way he does. Why does he take a stand here and demand justice in this moment? And I think the reason that Paul does it is because he realizes what is happening in this city. 
And that is that a new corner of Christ's kingdom is being built. And Paul wants to stand in solidarity with them. And he understands that persecution will surely fall upon them just as it has fallen upon him. And he wants them to know that he's got their back. And he wants the magistrates to know that this is not right. And so he stands up. He says enough is enough. This injustice is just that, an injustice. So that they will know in their own conscience that if they continue doing these things, it's wrong. It's wrong. Friends, I want you to realize then, as we see how Paul and his team received a necessary endurance, that our faith, our faith in Jesus, our submission to King Jesus, our willingness to give everything, including our backs, to the kingdom of Jesus will shake the pagan culture. It will jostle the ways of this world. But the mission of Jesus Christ will not be stopped. No matter what the world throws at him, no matter what the world throws at us, Jesus has told us so in his gospels. I have indeed overcome the world. And the time in prison, some of us end up there, it could be redeemed. And that's what we see in the final section. Point five, the necessary salvation. Let me read that section I skipped over in verses 25 through 34. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his household. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in. What a bittersweet providence. In some ways, what happens in this jail is the point of this whole passage. Because we find the very reason Paul would allow himself to be put in chains. So that God may be glorified. So that the mission and the gospel that it held out may go forth. Paul's there with his boys in the stocks. No way to move. Literally, they can't get up. They would put wood around their legs and chain them in. We find them at midnight doing what persecuted believers have done ever since. Praying and singing. Some of you, just a quick side note. Some of you, I don't have this in my notes, so... If it's uh, too much, Lord will deal with it. Some of you, in the face of a culture that pushes back against Christianity and the things of this world, like to spend your time ranting and raving. It's in your heart. It's in my heart. I know how it is. Maybe we could take this as a correction for us. That Paul, in prison, having great injustice done against him and his friends, is doing what? Not filling up his Facebook news feed with how much he hates the government. But singing and praying and worshiping. Can you be a suffering worshiper? Follow Paul in doing it. It's during his worship that this great earthquake comes. Jesus is always 
freeing people out of bondage, isn't he? We see there that the quake opens everything. The jailer sees it. He says that he was woke. Not that kind of woke. He woke up. And he noticed that the bonds had been loosed. And what that would have meant for him is that he had let prisoners go free. And he was going to be surely killed by the magistrates because he had failed at his job. And that death would have been a lot worse than if he had just killed himself. So he pulls out his sword. We don't know how Paul knows that he's going to do it. But Paul cries out, don't. We're still here. What a trust in God's sovereignty that freedom would be granted to them and they would remain. He trembles with fear because the jailer realizes that something supernatural has happened. He surely knew what had happened to the slave girl before. And maybe he thought, "Ah, I don't know, maybe, you know, some setup. It's really weird and they threw these guys in jail. But now he knows with the earthquake and the opening of everything that God is indeed at work here. So the jailer falls at their feet and he asks them the question, the question we should all be asking. In the face of this, in the face of all we've seen God do, what must I do to be saved? The jailer doesn't want to be on the opposing side anymore. And friend, maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. This is what we want you to ask as well. In the light of seeing who God is and what He has done in sending Jesus Christ to die for us upon a cross. To be buried in three days to rise again and ascend to the right hand of the Father where He rules and reigns and will one day come back to rule and reign fully. Creating a perfect paradise for His people. Holding that up to all that the world And all that sin and all that Satan holds up and the destruction it brings about. The question that we want you to ask today is this. What must I do to be saved? They give him quite an answer, don't they? It is the very crux of a gospel response. Believe In the Lord Jesus. Believe in the Master Jesus. Believe in King Jesus. That He is who He said He is. The jailer obviously doesn't know all the details about this. That's why it says right after that. That they taught Him. They spoke to Him the word of the Lord. They they, they lay it out. Evangelism oftentimes is not this just one time shot. And everybody understands everything. Especially as we move out of this Christianese culture that that has been around for so many years. You're going to tell people about Jesus. And they say, I don't know anybody named Jesus. Who is Jesus? You're going to have to speak the word of the Lord in your evangelism. And, And here we see Paul and Silas doing the exact same thing. And he believes. They share it with his household. And they believe. That's right. Everybody in his household believed. So he takes them into his house. And what happens? He washes them the very wounds that they had just received at the hands of his bosses. They wash him too, don't they? The early church father, John Chrysostom, said it this way. He washed and was washed. He washed them from their stripes and was himself washed from his Sins. This is the glory of what the gospel does. Not an hour before he was their enemy. And an enemy of Jesus Christ. He put and held in chains God's servants. And yet now here he is welcoming them into his home. He receives them. And he receives a better washing than he had ever gotten before. Showing a new Phase of gospel expansion. Once enemies, the jailer and Paul now become family. Friends, this is what the gospel does. This is what a necessary salvation is all about. So, what is a missionary? What is a missionary? It's one who gives themselves to Jesus' mission. A missionary is someone who gives themselves to Jesus' mission. And that can be giving yourself to Jesus' mission right here, right now. Or it could be somewhere around the world. While the time and place have changed from this passage today, the call upon Christians has not. 
And the reason that the call upon Christians has not is because the captain who gives that call has not. He's right in the same place he was then, at the right hand of the Father, directing his people to be missionaries here and now. He gives a necessary people for you, many of them sitting in this room right now. He gives the necessary spirit who indwells all of his followers, working in us and through us and among us. He gives us a necessary ministry. For some it may be near, for some it may be far. And he will give us necessary endurance to be honorable in the face of blows. And friends, that same sweet gospel and salvation that comes through it compels us to stay in the stocks until the work is complete. So do not lose hope that the glory of Jesus will reign forevermore. And we are a part of that mission now. God will do all the heavy lifting. That's what we see in this passage. God will do all of the heavy lifting. The question for you is will you sit on the sidelines and watch? Will you get in and fight for the kingdom of God? Let us pray. Father, we do not suppose to have all the answers, all the strength, all the endurance needed. God, in our own spirits, we fail. In our own strength, we fail. We do not know where to go and what to do apart from you. And so, God, I pray now in this very moment as we respond in this supper, as we respond in singing, God, I pray in this week, literally and actually, God, would you make clear to us what it looks like to be a gospel people fighting and pushing forward for the kingdom of God, not for the kingdom of ourselves. Not for our preferences or our desires, but for your kingdom and your kingdom alone. Be glory 